for those words, and we thank you for that reminder again that you are faithful unto us and you have provided all that we need. May we never forget it. And Lord, may that, that the words now are open up to you and uh, we hear from your message that it will stir our hearts to serve you more. And uh, may you inspire Jonathan as he gives us uh, your word this morning. May we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we're actually going to be in the last sermon in the series that we're doing in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 5, it was read for us earlier uh, by Renata. And so uh, just to sort of recap where we've been uh, in the last couple of weeks is we've talked a lot about suffering in the church. We've talked about uh, the fact that Peter uh, is writing this letter to Christians who have been suffering. They've undergone uh, unimaginable suffering at the hands of the Roman government. Uh, they've been tortured. They've been executed and really uh, been persecuted throughout the known world. And Peter is writing this letter to a group of Christians uh, in the Asian province trying to bolster them and support them in this time of suffering. And so uh, sort of the first four chapters that he's, he's hit on, he's really touched on this subject of suffering. And in this one, it's sort of like the conclusion or the summation of this letter. So chapter 5, uh, uh, verse 1 to 3. So exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the word that he uses here. Uh, the word is elder. Um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that in the Greek. Presbyteros. Hey, that wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. It's the Greek word presbyteros, and it means like a church leader or an administrator. And so uh, a lot of times when we read the word elder, there's a lot of stuff associated with it. Uh, we think church structure, church hierarchy, but that's not necessarily what he's going for here. Uh, in fact, the idea of elder is not uh, specifically a New Testament idea, but in fact comes from many places in the Old Testament. And so I'm just going to uh, quickly tell you a, story, uh, a couple of stories from the Old Testament. It's going to be fun. Um, so there's this guy called Moses. We all know Moses. Okay, if you're not familiar with uh, Charleston Heston, you know the Let My People Go. That movie, the Ten Commandments, nothing. If you're a little bit younger, maybe it's the Prince of Egypt. They're racing chariots across the Sphinx's nose. They knock the, the nose off. No, nothing. I'm getting nothing here. Fine. Whitney Houston sang a song. It was very good. Anyway, so we're talking about that Moses. And so while those are movies, Moses is a historical figure. He's a real person that really existed. They found uh, in Egypt hieroglyphs and thingy what's it's on the, on the walls depicting the events of the book of Exodus. And so uh, much like in those movies, notice I didn't mention gods and genies this morning. Um, 
very bad movie. Uh, so in, in, in the story, Moses leads his people out of captivity into the wilderness, and in the wilderness comes across this particular verse that we're going to be looking at. It's from the book of Numbers, uh, and this is God speaking. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of them, some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will meet us, uh, who will give us meat to eat, for it is better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And so what Moses is told by God is this, grab there are, there are some people in the tribes of Israel from every single tribe. There's going to be 70 men who are already in this position of elder. So we'll get to what that position meant in just a moment. And those elders you're going to select from these tribes and you're going to bring them into the tent of meeting, which is where the Spirit of God physically dwelt during the wilderness. And in that tent, my spirit is going to move amongst all of them and anoint them so that they can make wise decisions, good decisions, and they can help you with the burden of leadership. And so the elder or the institution of the elders is closely linked with the tribal system. And so uh, I think I have this in here, but it's a lot of words. Do I have the words? Do I have the words? Yeah, I put in a lot of words. I'm not going to read it all verbatim, but I'm just going to sort of explain the way it works. What would happen is these tribes grew before they came into a united Israel. Uh, you would select someone, usually a man, usually an old man, from the particular tribe, and that person would become an elder. And when there were decisions that needed to be made, when there were disagreements amongst the tribe, people would go to that elder, and that elder would render a decision. And so tribes were composed of clans, clans of large extended family units. By virtue of age and function in a patriarchal society, the father of a family ruled. This fact of age as well as wisdom and maturity invested in older persons, it means if you're old, you're supposed to be mature. I'm not talking mature like a fine wine or a cheese. I'm talking in your temperament, you're supposed to have mature responses. And you're supposed to have wisdom simply by the fact of age. Wasn't that the good old days? Oh, it was, when, when people were just simply wise because of their age. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, uh, invest in older persons is undoubtedly the origin of the authority that these elders exercise. So they said, look, you've lived a long time. You've been through a lot of circumstances. You had to have gotten some sort of wisdom from all of these life experiences. Now, if you were going to get, ooh, that was going to be a very bad example. I'm not doing that one. I'm changing that um, in my head. So, as an Australian uh, uh, and now a, a United States citizen, um, I'm going to, to switch to uh, my old example is the monarchy. You have the Queen of England. She's been around for a really long time, like a really long time. Uh, in, in all of those years, she has uh, got a certain amount of maturity and discernment in her leadership, correct? Uh, let's just uh, sort of assume that. So if you had the Queen of England and a five-year-old, who would you think is better at ruling England? See, now you know why I switched it to, to, to be England and not America. Because Congress right now, I, anyway, that's, I'm not getting political. I'm just saying it's a weird thing in, in, in Washington right now. So 
But, but so what we see, we, we naturally understand this, that if you've been in a position for a long time, if you are, are, are a godly person, uh, talking specifically now about church leadership, if you've been in the church for a long time, you've got discernment, you've got wisdom, naturally uh, what would happen in these old days is that you would become an elder. And so what we also see uh, in Exodus 18, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 18, verse 12, it says this, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, uh, Moses' father-in-law, before God. And so what we see is that this sort of elder institution is heavily influenced throughout the nation of Israel. And so even before God said, choose these 70 people, there were already people uh, in those positions of moral leadership. And so a central function of these elders, and this is what I found really fascinating, uh, some of you were here for our, uh, our uh, sermon series through the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, uh, when Mr. Boaz wants to marry her, he goes to the city gates where the elders are gathered. Do we remember this from the book? And he, he says to the city elders, um, I need you to come up uh, with the decision of whether or not I'm being fair, right? And so one of those functions of elders is that they were to administer just, uh, justice, and they were, in fact, judges who sat at the city gates and made these pronunciations. And so Ruth makes a little bit more sense that Boaz is going to the elders of the nation of Israel and getting them to make a decision based on their knowledge of the law, based on their moral tradition, based on what they know, and making that decision. At the city gates, disputes and trials were settled by the elders, and community affairs were discussed and decisions made. So if you had a beef with your neighbor, maybe, for instance, he stole your cow. Beef, cow, nothing. I'm getting nothing here. <laughs> I work for a long time on these jokes and I'm getting nothing from you. <sighs> so your neighbor steals your cow, you would go to the city gates and they would make a judgment. They would say, well, did you lock your cow up properly? Did you just let him wander onto his property? No, I locked him up, he was tried at the gate, I even looked, I branded him on the, you know, rump. And he's got the little brand there and he's, well, he's definitely his cow. And they would make the decision. And so much like our court system works today, uh, in the same way these people would go to the city gates. And if you continue this on throughout the entire Old Testament and even then get into the New Testament, in the three Gospels, uh, elders are mentioned over and over and over again, usually uh, in the same breath as Pharisees and scribes, you would also get elders. And so there were people in religious sects whose job was to be religious people and they would know the law, but there were also people who had this moral leadership due to the fact of their age and their position within their structure. And so when, when Peter here in, in uh, chapter 5 verse 1 says, I exhort the elders amongst you, he's talking to a specific group of people. It's people within the church who have been given moral leadership in that church. And that's why it's important for us today, because there are people in this church that have been given positions of moral leadership. If you are on the core council, you have a position of moral leadership, not just uh, administrative leadership. Does that make sense? And so if you are uh, a leader of one of our troop programs, Brian, and you, uh, and you 
lead our troops, and we've, in, we've said to you that you are going to be responsible for the development of these children and they're underneath you. Not only do you have a certain administrative responsibility, but you have a moral and ethical responsibility to teach them about Jesus and to teach them about the function of the church and to teach them uh, the things that we do here. Does that make sense? And so what's happening here in First Peter chapter 5 is he's talking to a group of people who are indeed sort of that leadership in the church. Uh, and that makes it all the more important that when God said to Moses, select these elders, let my spirit come upon them. And so those elders from amongst the church are also supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Not just, you're not just here because you're here. You're not just here because this is uh, what you've always done in the past. This is my seat, my spot. This is what I'm going to do. You are a moral leadership, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're not filled with the Spirit, then we have to have a talk. Go check that out. Elders need to be of a certain temperament. Now, if I'm to look deep within myself, there are times when I fail the biblical uh, sort of explanation of what uh, a, a certain temperament is. Sometimes I lose my temper. Sometimes I get frustrated and angry. Now, most of the time, I am, I'm proud to say that after I lose my temper, I, I can acknowledge it and go and apologize, right? Uh, so I'm not saying that I sit and dwell in my sin there, um, but the Holy Spirit is still working on that in me, uh, that, that, that temperament. And so leaders uh, within the church have to be of a certain temperament. So if you are quick to anger, if you are quick to judgment, if you are quick to give up, that's not the temperament of an elder of the church. That's not a temperament of someone who is in a position of moral leadership. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears... That's Jesus. Just in case you were wondering, chief shepherd, Jesus. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Not necessarily age, but more in Christian maturity. In the church, there are people who have been Christians for a long time, know a lot about Jesus, a lot about the Bible, uh, who are older in the faith. And then there are people who, who may be new to Christianity, new to this whole Jesus thing, and they are younger in the faith. And a lot of the times when we read uh, older and younger in the New Testament, it's speaking to their spiritual walk with Christ, not with their physical age. The one real exception to that is uh, in the book of Timothy when Peter, uh, Paul rather says to Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you are young. That reference is specific to age, but most of all of the other references are about spiritual maturity. So just because you are on the older spectrum of life, not making eye contact with anyone, does not mean that you have a spiritual maturity to match. And just because you might be on the younger side of life does not mean you have a spiritual maturity that matches. Your spiritual maturity has nothing to do with your physical age. And so here, uh, the particular word that he uses for younger is not a chronological uh, definition. It is a spiritual definition. So do not let, uh, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself with uh, all of you with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter expresses an ultimate reality, the honor that awaits elders and, in fact, Christians for faithful service. In their faithful service as leaders, uh, elders exude the glory of Jesus. If you are faithful, you will exude in your being the glory of Jesus. And so Peter has been talking a long time, four and a half chapters, uh, about suffering, about Christians are going to go through unbelievable suffering and torment. In your life, bad stuff is going to happen to you. What he says is if we remain faithful, if we remain on the path, if we remain truthful in our commitment to Christ, that there's going to be a reflection of Christ in us that people will see. When you don't act like everyone else acts, when you don't react like everyone else reacts, there is going to be in you something that shows people Jesus. And that is what he's talking about when he says that, the, the, that you will exude the glory of Jesus. And so not only is that going to happen here on earth, but then you have your eternal reward in heaven. And speaking now to all believers, Peter actually draws from the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, and he stresses the importance of humility in the Christian community. And so this is the other thing that I think that Christians are not great at is being humble. We're told often, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And he does. But what that leads to is uh, this inherent thing in the human part of our brain that then says, God loves me, therefore I must be better than other people. Or I must have some value or worth for that to happen. We don't look at God's love uh, as the unconditional love, which it is. What we do is we say, well, then I must be all that in a bag of chips, right? Do, and, and I'm not saying this is even a conscious thing, but people do it in the back of their brains. And so what Peter is saying, he draws from the Old Testament. In fact, uh, he, um, uh, he draws from the Old Testament a lot here. Uh, he, he says that we need to remain humble and we remain, need to remain faithful. And that humility is saying, even though I am a sinner, Christ died for me. So what can I do to glorify him? God didn't need to love me. God didn't need to save me. Yet he does and he did. So how can I serve him? Not he loves me and he died for me. So what can I do about me, 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 me? And our society is currently structured to be a very me-centered society. Everything revolves around self. What can we do for you? How can you raise yourself up? How can you get the better job, get the better income? How can you, how can you, you? And so our society is built around that. And so it's a completely different worldview from the Bible that says, instead of the world revolving around you, the world should revolve around God. And that's the biblical uh, perspective, is that everything in the Bible is the story of God. We're just players in that story. The Bible is not about you and me. From the beginning, it's the story of redemption of God what God is doing in the world, how God created the world, God created us, God then sees that we're sinners and then creates a path of redemption traced throughout the entire scripture of how God is going to redeem us to him through Jesus Christ. It is his story and we're just players in it. And even though we're just players in it, uh, Peter still here quotes from Psalms that says, cast your burdens on the Lord for he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Even in your cast your anxieties, your cares, your burdens on Jesus because he loves you. 
we could sing this as a song when I was younger, and it's how I learned to fix the reverse. I'm not going to sing it now. You're welcome. Because <coughs> I blew out my voice singing Harmony and Days of Elijah. However, if we're being real honest, again, a lot of Christians fail in this point as well. Cast your burden, your cares, your anxieties, however you want to translate that word, are you casting them on Jesus? Or are you holding on to them? Sometimes it's really easy to hold on to them because if we hold on to them, we can show them to people. Look at all my problems that I'm dealing with. Look at all my problems that I'm going through. Aren't I a strong individual because I have all these problems? Instead, if you cast your anxieties on Jesus, your burdens, your cares, your worries, it changes the attitude of the heart to say, I have they're still here. I still need to, be, to figure out how to pay rent. I still need to figure out how I'm going to beat this sickness. But I don't have to worry because my anxieties are now with Jesus. Cast your burdens on the Lord for he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Talked about that before. Be sober-minded. Don't let, while emotions are a good thing, don't let em emotions rule over logic. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking something to, de to devour. Turn on the news. You will see the devil roaring around like a lion waiting to devour. We live in a dark time throughout the entire world. In fact, a recent uh, Christian uh, study was released just a, a, a few months ago uh, that said in the last decade to decade and a half, uh, the Christian church has seen more persecution in the rest of the world than it has for the last some three to four hundred years. With people, uh, Christians uh, overseas in certain countries uh, being beheaded, with uh, churches being burnt to the ground, with some countries expelling Christians completely from their borders. It's illegal at the moment to be a Christian in Russia. They change that rule like every five to ten years. Um, they get a little wishy-washy on that, but at the moment, it's currently illegal to be a Christian in Russia. And so he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, so be watchful. Resist him, being the devil, firm in your faith. Resisting the devil has to do with how firm you are in your faith. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know scripture, then you can't resist the devil because you can't recognize him. The book of James said, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That submitting to God is key to the Christian life. It's that we need to submit to God, we need to be firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. A lot of the time, we suffer in silence uh, alone. You're not alone. I can guarantee you that any way that you're suffering, there is someone in the world that has suffered the same way or is suffering the same way that you are suffering. And part of being a Christian is sharing that with one another so that we can pray for one another, so that we can share our anxieties and burdens with one another so that we're not carrying them alone. We give them to Christ, and then we 
pray about them and you tell them. And, and, and see, there's a difference between telling one or two people that you know are going to pray for you and help you out and telling everyone on Facebook. Do, do you see how there's a difference there? If you can't, we'll talk later after the service. But there's a difference there. The same kind of suffering has been experienced throughout the entire world. And after all you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while. So remember when I told you that suffering is guaranteed? Ta-da! Right there. But after you have suffered a little while, just a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But here's the key. You've got to let him. Too, too often God is like, is right here waiting to strengthen and, and, and uh, confirm you and to, to, to establish you. And too often we're standing in front of him trying to show everything to everyone. And so we're ignoring the fact that God is right there ready and willing and waiting to do something about it. Because we're so, so focused on these anxieties and cares and worries and burdens in our hand that we're ignoring the fact that God's right there, ready to do something. And we end Peter by saying this, to him, Jesus, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The reality of scripture is that Jesus has dominion over everything. You may suffer for a little while, but that suffering is designed to build you in faith so that you can love a God who loves you first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us today to come into your presence and to worship and to love you. I pray, Lord God, as we end our service, that you be with each one of us, that you outpour your Holy Spirit on each one of us here, that as we go from this place, we can truly be aware of your presence in our lives. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, as we go through the suffering that is going to happen in our lives, that you be with us, that you guide us, and that you help us to cast our anxieties, our cares, and our burdens on you, for we know, Lord, that you love us more than anything. We pray all this in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.